Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Writing and the subject matter of my book today have something in common. Both can leave you naked and exposed to the public eye. Writing can reveal more than we know about ourselves and leave us open to public scrutiny. So the book is entitled Two Decades Naked and it's a memoir about life as a stripper. The author is Lee Hopkinson. So Lee, welcome to 3CR. Thanks for having me on the show. You've got a very soft voice, Lee. Oh, do I? Yeah, I'm just sort of making sure that we've got the right um, right microphones going. Now, sort of life as a stripper, but now my first opening gambit, emancipation or exploitation. How do you see the life of a stripper? I think that's a really great question and... I think it depends very much on the individual and on the venue and how much control uh, a dancer has over her work environment. And that's one thing I really enjoyed about the industry, especially in its heyday here in Melbourne in in the early 2000s, where I was very much my own boss. So I could choose my hours. um, I could take time off when I wanted and I could still have a job to come back to. And and that's a, a fairly rare thing. And um, certainly I I felt that the environment that I was working in um, was conducive to to my needs and I loved performing, I loved meeting people and uh, it was a time where we could really celebrate striptease as an art and uh, it was appreciated. Well, it is an art in the sense that you look at, um, is it Dieter von Tees and Mm -hmm. such like? It's, It's taken to a theatrical... Uh, extent. But when I was reading this, I'm looking at some of the seedier sides fairly early on You've uh, in New Zealand. Um, and you mentioned the Miss Nude Canterbury competition. Uh, Miss Nude Canterbury 1994 began with Craig jumping on stage and announcing the six contestants. In the first blow to my pageant fantasy and counterintuitively, we were instructed to line up topless. Then we each drew a number from a smelly hat procured from the old timer in the front row to determine our order of appearance. I drew number four. It has a sense of being seedy and as if you're being exploited or the girls were being exploited there. Yeah, it's a complex world. Uh, That was my one and only attempt at at pageants. Um, I think it was uh, fairly unregulated back in the 90s in Christchurch and certainly there was a lot of crossover between uh, strip clubs and brothels. They were often run and managed by the same people and at that stage prostitution hadn't been uh, decriminalised as it has been since. So there really wasn't an incentive for uh, owners to invest in their venues in case they could be shut down. So yes, there was an element of... um, 
underworld, if you like, that when I came to Melbourne and the venues were much more regulated, there was there was much greater professionalism. So uh, did I feel exploited? I, th- I think, you know, I had come from uh, a private boarding school and it had been a fairly um, regulated upbringing. So for me to then go into to the world of striptease at night where I could be my own boss, um, I, I certainly didn't feel I was being exploited most of the time in that particular scene. I think uh, there's always going to be rules and regulations around competitions. And mm. um, it, yeah, it, it's it's a male-dominated, that was a male-dominated um, club in particular. So uh, other venues are, are run quite differently. Mm. Well, you say you had a conservative upbringing. How then did you handle that transition into the, the sort of liberated world of, of striptease? I loved it. I, I was quite naive initially, I think. Uh, I certainly had, um, you know, my parents had worked really hard to send me to to boarding school and it was a, a, a middle class, upper middle class environment. And then I hadn't had a lot of exposure to different cultures, to different walks of life. And I could see when I left school that there was this whole world out there and a, a sense of diversity that I wanted to engage but to with. to jump straight into that other world mm. after the conventional school boarding school uh, you're at university at the time this yes. is a conventional path you're on yes and and I'm not a hugely conventional person so it, it really gravitated uh, I gravitated towards it rather and um it certainly it took me a while to navigate that world and uh, there were there was plenty of stumbling along the way, uh, but I, I liked the possibility that it offered me. The motivation for your involvement in the industry keeps creeping through, and I'm I was wondering what you were suggesting at times. I'm just going to read a little extract. Um, you've got you've dyed your hair and such like. You look just like Marilyn, Star declared. Although unconvinced, I liked that people turned to stare at me. I looked like someone, even if no one knew who that someone was. Not until I bumped into Jacinta Outside Pleasures, both of us wearing blue jeans and cream jumper, jumpers, she scowling silently, did I realise I'd recreated myself in her image. Are you getting lost or identity, this notion of identity and getting lost in an image. What's going on there? Certainly at 18, I uh, was, as as I guess a lot of us are at 18, we're defining our identity. It's, it's a chance to be out in the world, um, free from parental constraints. And um, that's, that's a process, isn't it, really, when we, when we shape ourselves and how we'd like to be seen in the world. And uh, I think uh, I had grown up idolising uh, film stars such as Marilyn. There was a mystique and uh, a vulnerability that really appealed to me about her. And then uh, more recently, Madonna. I really loved her power and her zest and her ability to uh, to be so strong. So, yes, I think I was exploring my own boundaries and certainly at times I did get a little bit lost in how I 
was in the world outside of the club and how I would like to be perceived when I was on stage. Is there a lack of opportunity, and I don't mean girls should go into stripping, but is there a lack of opportunity for girls to actually establish their identity and express themselves, do you think, in society or... I think in Christchurch in the 90s, there was uh, a very conservative climate and New Zealanders are quite well known for tall poppy syndrome. We don't really like to stand out. And that's one of the reasons that I came to Melbourne. I loved the diversity and the expression and the creativity and how it was okay to learn and grow and make mistakes. And certainly where I had come from in Christchurch, I didn't feel uh, that I could be outrageous and uh, expressive and draw attention to myself and... um, Certainly the traits that I have outgrown as I've got older. Um, But at the time, I felt there was was a real uh, lack of creativity that the city in general offered me. Hmm. There's also a contradiction within the industry, um, an ambivalence, you might say. You started dating uh, Craig, who um, owned Rocking Rods, where you started, but he actually wants you to stop stripping. And... um, Where have I got the extract? Uh, One afternoon, he caught me pining over my suitcase of costumes. I was on my knees, admiring an exquisite rainbow sequin corset. He left the room and came back with a pair of scissors. It's either me or stripping. Make up your mind. You can't mean it, I said incredulously. I do mean it. Here's somebody who owns a strip club, and yet he doesn't want his girl. Uh, So, well, his in terms of proprietorial in many ways, uh, in the industry, so to speak. What's going on? Well, that absolutely threw me. That was the last thing I expected coming. Um, And at 18, I don't think I had the the ability to really discern what was going on there. Um, Certainly, I think being... Well, yes, being... um, He was my boss, he was my lover, and he was 20 years older than me, so there was, um, he was authorial, I think, in a a sense. well, I'm seeing yeah. I'm seeing danger signs going on <laughs> reading this, but that's that's from a, a sort of more mature perspective yeah. looking at that. Yeah, yeah. I, I think looking back, there were lots of danger signs, but I didn't necessarily see them at the time. Being yeah. aware of them, you also have another life there, which is an undercurrent going through the book in many ways. You are a student. You actually become editor of the student newspaper on campus. It's called Can- Canter. And, and this involvement in writing is continually there, one outcome of which, of course, is this book. But then, um, when university finished, I had close to 70 articles published, a surprisingly easy, almost joyless feat. I was upset by that line. <laughs> Joy in writing? Um, I think I had grown up with this, this perception that I was... Um, going to carve my way in newspapers and I, I romanticised, I think, the, the 60s and 70s and that old school journalism that I had heard so much about. It's a very male-dominated environment from what I've, I've heard. And um, 
when I went back and did a graduate diploma of journalism uh, in 2001, uh, that was when the majority of the articles were published. And um, I think part of, uh, I, I was impatient. I wasn't really prepared to do my time. Uh, but I also recognized that a lot of media was, was negative. It was about criticism. It was about um, bad news that was tended to be up front and center. And I was really seeking creativity at the time. I was seeking a way of, of generating positivity and, and good news. And I wasn't able to find that in newspapers. And certainly if I had been patient and done my time, that, that may have come along and I may have been able to find ways of, of gravitating towards that. But uh, yeah, I was a bit impetuous when I was younger. <laughs> I still get a bug. I mean, I've had the occasional article published, not 78 or whatever. And for me, there's a buzz about having something out there that people can uh, respond to and react to. So that that was the interesting thing there. Um, the other interesting thing, well, one of the interesting things, because there are many uh, in this book, is it documents the changes in the industry here and overseas. And in fact, you uh, work in London at one stage Um and here the customers were almost always seated. It was a system of subtle dominance that began with them being shown to their table by a hostess and continued with table service only. The bar was out back, invisible from the floor, which meant that the only reason a guy had for getting out of his chair was to go to the toilet. It was like being on board a jumbo jet with the seatbelt sign switched on, except all the air hostesses wanted to take their clothes off. Being seated also ensured a customer's face was in line with a dancer's breasts when she approached. Clearly, this system had been well thought out by a man who knew men. The very systematic approach to the industry here. Mm -hmm. What's going on? London was an interesting time for me. Uh, it was my first introduction uh, to to table dancing, essentially, and private dancing, which is um, where you dance for a customer at their seat, uh, or you take them to a private room and dance for them there. So it was a really well organised venue. It was very very well run. Uh, I think one of the things about the industry that I've always been fascinated by is there is this underlying structure which holds in place what is conducted with with great fluidity. Uh, so uh, it really varies from club to club. You know, in mm. London there was there was a containment which I hadn't seen in other venues. Uh, certainly in Melbourne, there's a there's a greater fluidity. Um, you, yeah, clearly you don't have to sit down and stay seated when you go to a venue in Melbourne. In, in different clubs have different approaches. You're on 3CR. This is Published or Not. I'm talking to Lee Hopkinson about two decades naked, her memoir of 20 years as a stripper and writer, I should say. Um there are other changes also that are occurring in the industry as well, that this sort of incremental creeping, the girls having to actually pay in order to perform. And I found that fascinating, as if the, the changes in the industry were putting further imposition on the girls. 
Yes, and that is something that I do touch on initially in the London chapter. Um, when I started in New Zealand, I was paid a wage and I performed stage shows and it was uh, I knew what I was going to earn at the end of each shift and the end of each week. So there was a certain uh, security that came with, with the work. And when I came to Melbourne, there was no wage. We were paid by the customers for performing private dances or table dances and at that stage it was uh, I think about $10 initially per song and uh, it's gone up to I think about $50 for 10 minutes now Um, but we didn't have to pay a house fee then and that's been bought in, as you said. It came in, I think, around 2002, where it was $20 a night we would pay the club. It's up to about 100 a night now. The reasons for that uh, escalation, shall we say? I, I'm not sure exactly the reasons, but I would say it was similar to what happened in London, whereas when there is a decline in the clientele, the club will cover its costs or its profit by charging the girls, the entertainers. So there's a, there's a duality that... that there's a very commercial place. duality there, very mm. practical duality. I mean, it's part of the reason it's hinted at is the rise of the internet. Yes. Uh, the internet has really impacted on the industry uh, in in quite a few ways and one is uh, customers who would come in to to have a dance um, who were drawn to the sexual nature of the work can now get that online Um, and the internet has made our attention span a lot shorter and uh, so consequently uh, there's a change towards more hardcore uh, actions shall we say in order to hold people's attention span so the people that do tend to come to the clubs these days are looking for more than just um the explicit nature of the work. They're looking for connection. They're looking to have um, a a dialogue and an exchange that you can't have online. Well, this sort of links neatly to the next sort of question, the types of people that uh, come to the clubs, the types of people that perform in the clubs. I mean, you've got the girls, uh, girls like Harlow, who had separated from her husband and was enjoying an affair with a famous married cricketer, enough said there. Bonnie was the pint-sized blonde I'd watched rolling around out on stage in a nurse's uniform. She worked weekends while her parents minded her three-year-old daughter. Diamond also sat in the second booth. She would arrive at 8pm, ready to go, fake tan to a jaw like a body stocking. How are we, girls? She'd sing out, walloping her enormous suitcase onto the bench. Um, So you've got a range of girls with a range of backgrounds and interests. What's compelling them to perform, do you think? I think it's so individual and that's one of the reasons that I wanted to write the book because I wanted to celebrate the humanity of the people that I've worked with over the years and it draws such a wide variety of people with a lot of different motivations. For example, I've worked with with students from doctors to PhD students to circus performers to horse massage, you name it. Um, The flexibility of the work allows um, people to study. And I've also worked with uh, a lot of immigrants who haven't spoken English when they've come to Australia and they've gone on now to establish you're, their you're own You're not businesses. affirming Dutton's claim that migrants don't speak English. 
I am not going there at all. I, I don't I, actually. I, I don't think we should somehow. But you've also then got um, the men. Some men's touch was neutral, neither giving nor taking from the experience. Others made my skin crawl. Usually these men were needy, greedy cheapskates. I made a mental note to avoid them. Their money wasn't worth what the experience took from me. While I never liked the contact, I wanted to like the men, even respect them, so I could continue respecting myself. I began to look for common ground in our conversations, making an effort to humanise these walking wallets, the types of men that frequent these clubs. Sure. Well, that passage that you've read out is from uh, when I was working day shift, and it was a, a much quieter time at the men's gallery than when I was working nights. So the boundaries definitely during the day were a little murkier than they were at night, where it was more of a party environment. So I, I went back to working nights quite quickly. Um, and you get so many different people coming in. You get guys who are there on Bucks parties, who are there for office breakups, who are wanting to celebrate. Um, you get other men who are there wanting to have time out. Um, I can remember having met a few people who were there uh, after funerals and had nowhere else to go and just wanted to get out of their own heads for a while. Um, I once met a peacekeeper who had just come back from Iraq and he said to me, I'm here trying to relearn how to relate because the transition for him was so huge coming from a war zone to to normal society. Um, then, yeah, you just get so many different people coming through. How possible is it then for a normal relationship? I'm coming from a very conventional upbringing myself sort of thing but you know just wanting to be able to relate but um am i being judgmental or um how possible is it then to uh form a relationship if they are sort of walking wallets in some ways. What's going on? Well, it's a transaction first and foremost, and we're there to provide a service. And, and I see that service uh, primarily as entertainment. Um, it's it's a bit of a, a crossover between theatre and counselling and sport, striptease in a way. Um, but I do see it primarily as entertainment and uh, that's why the book is written in the way that it is, because I wanted it to be an entertaining read and I wanted to to take the reader into a world that they might never otherwise venture into. Yeah, so. well, it, it, it's sort of uh, an, an insight into an industry that a lot of people wouldn't have come across, but also, as I say, two decades. So it's documenting a, a transition and a change. We're seeing personalities and types. Um, it's not salacious necessarily um but in terms of writing then and getting back to sort of my opening um laying yourself bare in writing what have mm -hmm. been the consequences of writing uh this book in many ways wow uh, i've yet to really find out uh, uh, the public response uh certainly my community and my friends have been very supportive my writing community especially um I think it's been a little worrying for my family, not knowing how the work will be received. Um, I've always been a bit of a chronic oversharer. I get a lot of pleasure and joy out of um, communicating with people their their deepest experiences and certainly putting this information out into the public sphere wasn't, uh, wasn't too worrying for me. Um, 
I, I think that's how we learn and grow, right? And and to share genuine experiences and uh, and also part of writing the book was for me to better understand my own motivations and processes over time. Well, there's a couple of things there in terms of uh, leaving yourself open to uh, being judged and you just don't know how the reader will respond. There's the intimate nature of what you're revealing. So, yes, extended family and things like that and how they're uh, going to react and all, all of those sorts of things. Uh, dangerous territory in some ways. I feel like I've already been judged quite a lot for the decisions I've made and certainly there's a lot of stigma surrounding stripping and sex work generally. So I felt that in writing the book it was reclaiming some of my power regarding that. It was owning my journey and and not being ashamed of the decisions I've made and the experiences that I've had, which for the most part have been positive. And I, I got a little tired of having to fight um, for that and, and in a way uh, hopefully the book will do some of that work where it'll, yeah you're also transitioning uh, because uh, you're into teaching yoga uh, and such like and during the course of the book there were other attempts to sort of leave but it kept pulling you back it did <laughs> yeah it did um Certainly now at 41, it's uh, not something I'm going to continue to pursue stripping. I think 20 well, years is enough time. And 20 one... years, but also there was physical damage in many ways. And one of the ironies was when you started teaching yoga, mm. one of the comments you made was um, about becoming more aware of your body, which I found fascinating after decades of dancing. But then it was the yoga and the getting to be aware of how your own body functioned in many ways you know and the, and the impact that physical work had had on your body yeah I, I think that's one of the great things about yoga is that, that it does allow you to to explore not just your own physical self but your mental self and it, it gives you um a space in which you can safely explore what's going on for you and certainly that's a really different environment than being in a club space where you are but is there you know, a correlation with the physicality or not I think there is in that stripping was was a wonderful opportunity to explore both my sexuality and my sensuality and to inhabit my body and explore the way it moved for hours every night is, you know, it's a really lush thing and it's it's a rare thing to be paid to do that. Um, so there was certainly crossover, um, but it's a different type of exploration. I mean, yoga is very much um, about about the self and getting to know the self, whereas uh, with stripping, it was there to perform a service and to entertain. So. And where to from now? I mean, if you're mm -hmm. no longer a stripper, uh, is it calling you in some ways still, that... that interest and where do you go to from here? Mm. I miss a lot of aspects about working in the industry. I miss the night work and the timelessness of, of working at night. I miss um, the sisterhood. Um, certainly I miss being able to, to navigate that world in the way that I could. Um, I... I uh, 
I won't be going back there, but there is a lot about it that that I'm nostalgic for. Um, and that's that I'm also enjoying being out in the world fully clothed and, uh, and enjoying... Well, on a cold Melbourne day, I there's know. nothing better than to be fully clothed. <laughs> yeah, so for me, more time in nature, more time writing and, and more time connecting with community. Well, it's been a fascinating discussion into a world that I'm not familiar with. The book is Two Decades Naked, uh, Hache Publication, and the author, Lee Hopkinson. So, Lee, thank you very much. Thank you.